a lot of what we're going to talk about today is going to be the same thing. Here in the, the wrap-up to the book of Colossians, Paul is going to use all of the things he's been explaining about putting on the new man and becoming like Jesus and all that, and he's going to bring it to this close where he gives us some very practical instruction on what that's supposed to look like. It's all good, right, for us to say, yes, I'm born again, and I love Jesus, and I'm like Jesus, but then if that doesn't make much of a difference in how we look out in the world, it doesn't make much of a difference, right? And people notice that, and that's not how the Lord is asking us uh, to be. So there's going to be a lot of practical things in here. We're going to talk about a little bit of history. Um, going to going to speak on some controversial issues, which will be good, and, and we won't do anything very controversial. But um, I'm excited. It's going to be good. So we're going to we're going to close up the book of Colossians. And because it's been a while, I'm going to actually read a couple verses before where we're going to start, just so that we make sure that we have uh, the context. So let's start together in verse 16 of Colossians chapter 3. And I will read our, our first section here. It's a big section, so we're going to go a uh, little kind of chunk by chunk. Right now I'm going to read through to verse 21. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So that section is closing a large section on the new self in Christ. If we're in Christ, here's who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, now whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So whatever we read next, it's going to be flowing out of that idea that, hey, whatever you're, wherever you're at in life, whatever you've been given to do, whatever you find in front of you, you're supposed to do that in the name of Jesus. And you're supposed to do that thankfully. Um, and, you know, in the name of the Lord Jesus, meaning when you're doing these things, people are seeing Jesus through you. So with that in mind, we're going to read this next section through, through verse 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So we have a little section here of instructions to families. And again, like I said, this is going to be super practical, most of this. Each verse in this section is covering a person from your typical family, and it's going to give them spiritual instruction. Um, and it's very practical spiritual instruction. And I want to just make a note at the beginning, and we'll see this through each of these sections. It's very countercultural instruction. What do I mean by that? Well, we should expect, right, if we received, this book is from the Lord, it's inspired, we should expect that it applies to every culture, right? I can read this and somebody across the world in a totally different culture can read this and both of us will be instructed. But we should also inspect that we might be corrected a little bit. And we see that no matter what, right? In this culture, the, the Colossian culture, in the Roman world, um, these instructions are very countercultural. And I'll go ahead and say I think they're pretty countercultural for us today. No matter where you are in the world, right, these are instructions that you read them and you say, woof, that's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult for me to do. That's not the, way, the normal way it's done. And that's true of all these instructions. When it says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Um, in the Colossian culture, this was something that wasn't done in a way fitting to the Lord. It was done pretty brutally. Um, you can read some pretty terrible things that were written about how, how people thought about how people's order and hierarchy and submission in the world should go. And it was enforced on people. It wasn't done kindly. And the people who had that enforced on them, I'm sure they weren't thinking, you know what, I should submit to this. I'm sure it built bitterness in their hearts. So when Paul would, would say, with the power of the Holy Spirit, wives, submit to your husbands, that would have been a pretty radical thing for them to hear. As is fitting in the Lord, well, he's not acting in a way that's fitting to the Lord. That would have been hard in some ways for them to hear. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That was a pretty radical instruction to that day and age. 
they had every right to do whatever they wanted, and they often exercised that right. So when Paul is saying, that's not the way we do these things. If we're in Christ, that's not the way we behave. That would have surprised some people. And honestly, if we look at how marriages go in our, let's just take our little context in our country today, do we see that we're doing perfectly with that? Yeah, it seems like all the wives are submitting in love and all the husbands are not being harsh. We got it. We don't need this instruction. No, we read those things and we still, I see some of you squirming right now. We're still saying, oh, I don't know about this one. But this is the instruction that the Lord has given us about how he wants the family to go. And I'm not going to cover too much more about the, the, the biblical masculine and feminine roles in marriage before. We spent a lot of time on that in Genesis recently, and Tyler did an excellent job, so please check that out um, for a refresher. But I just want to note that what God is doing here is he's calling everyone in the family to a specific task that he's given to us. And we're free in any of these cases, no matter where we find ourselves, right? If you read that list and you find yourself on that list, okay, yes, children, what am I supposed to do? We're free to disobey God's instruction, right? God doesn't enforce these things on us. We're free to act however we want. But we do that to our own hurt, right? Because what we're doing is we're trying to carry out a, a very difficult job without any of the help and the instruction that God has given us. God created the family. He created marriage. He created all these things. And he would know how it's supposed to go, right? And it's important to see that in all these instructions, whether it's to fathers or children or husbands or wives or whatever, it's important to see that God is pointing us towards each other. He's not pointing us separately towards ourselves. So how do, how do I mean that? Well, if you look at these instructions, he says wives, and then the instruction is to look to their husbands and to submit to them. He says husbands, the instruction is to, to love their wives. He, children, okay, look at your parents. You're supposed to obey them. Fathers, think about your children. He's pointing everybody in the family towards each other and saying you need to think about others. It's not just about you, right? That God's instruction is for our families to be a, a picture of the healthy, loving relationship that we see, honestly, in the Trinity itself. That's, that's what we're supposed to be looking at. We're saying, hey, God, within the Trinity, is there faction? Is there anger? Is there differences or strife? No, there's not. And we're brought into Christ, the Bible says, we're supposed to be showing that to the world. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, we, you know, obviously the, the direct application there is we look at that, we say, right, so you're supposed to have a job and make money. Yeah, okay. I think that is a big part of that. But let's just zoom out for a minute and say from that verse, God cares what happens to families. It's important to the Lord what our families look like. The, the picture we display to the world through our family unit and how it operates, God cares about that. And, you know, in following God's instructions, we see that the family unit was designed to function a certain way. And if any part of it falls out of alignment with God's plan, right? And you guys, we've all experienced this in our family, right? We're all doing one thing and somebody's out over here. That's a challenge. It's a, it causes problems in the family and it causes problems outside. You look at that and you can see that happening sometimes in a family. And you say, oh, well, that's tough, right? That's a challenge that they're going through. Now, I want to be careful when I say this and I, I don't want anybody to mishear me. It's when you're teaching and you're thinking about these things in the Word, you have to remember that, of course, God is aware that there's brokenness that goes on within our families. That's why we have these instructions. These instructions aren't a simple little formula like, well, if you just do this, everything will be easy and fine and, and dinner time will always be nice at your house. If it was, then I'm doing something very wrong, right? So that's not what this is. It's not an excuse for us to say, okay, well, if you do this, everything will be good. So you had a failure in your family, so that must be, you know, seems like you've got a problem. There must be sin there. Maybe. But that's not always the case. Sometimes brokenness happens in this world. And that's why we have these instructions. God is saying this is 
my path for you to follow that I know is going to bring you peace and love and happiness in whatever situation you find yourself. You could be in the worst family situation possible. And if you do your best to obey what God's instructions here are for you, God will bring blessing through that. I'm not promising that he'll bring wholeness through that in this world, but he will bless you for the obedience. That's a promise that we have from the word. So these things are things that should be the marks in general of a Christian family. We should be able to see this kind of behavior going on within a Christian household. And one of the best tools, and we're going to see this throughout this passage, is these are all instructions that God's giving us for how we behave, but then he points those outwards and says, now this is why I'm telling you, and it's so that the world will see this way that we're acting, the way that we're obeying the Lord. One of the best tools a godly family has for evangelism is just spending time with unbelievers in their home so that they can watch. It's really not that, that complicated, right? If you're obeying and loving the Lord and doing, in general, what you're supposed to do, again, we're not talking about perfection, right? Because I know I'm thinking, well, if they were watching, let's see, last week, that wouldn't have been a good <laughs> example, right? So it's not talking about perfection. In fact, sometimes even when you mess up, that's still a benefit for unbelievers because they get to see you apologize to one another and say, I was wrong. That was not what I should have done. But in general, as we're functioning the way the Lord would want us to function, that is a huge tool that the Lord uses to make the gospel attractive to people. We talked about this a couple months ago, where the idea that we're adorning the Word of God by our lives, that when people see us, they say, well, if that is the way following that makes you, I want in. That looks excellent, right? And that's a heavy charge. We're going to see here in a little bit, there's going to be a lot of instruction about prayer, because when we get to that charge of worse, the way we live is supposed to be showing the gospel to people, we can't do that. We need to be asking the Lord for His help. But it is certainly something that God has used many times. I think of, I think I've shared this story before, but I think of there's an example in my family's life where my family, we used to have a home fellowship in our house as long as I can remember. That was just always what it was. So every, usually it was, I think, Thursdays, we would have people over. And there was a really, a young lady who became really big part of our lives, like kind of like an older sister to me. And she had just gotten saved and came from a very difficult family background. All of these things you read here, not going on in her family, right? So she would start to come over early for home fellowship and she'd hang out and eat dinner with us. And I remember one time my mom and dad, being that they're excellent people and they love the Lord, but they're not perfect, right? They got into a disagreement and there was a little bit of tension, you know, in the home as, as happens there. They, somebody thought one thing and somebody else thought a different thing and they had a discussion about it. And, um, and after that all happened, now in my mind, I'm, you know, I'm old enough to realize that the disagreement's going on. So I'm saying, oh man, this is really awkward. Like, come on, guys. Like, yo, this is, you're embarrassing me, right? <laughs> to me, that's what I was feeling. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like, what, this isn't a good witness. Like this, you know, Megan just got saved and now here we are and this is going on. This is not good, I'm thinking. That's not how the Lord sees it. She watches this happen and she asks my mom, she says, what, that's it? And my mom's like, well, yeah, what do you, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Because my mom's already moved on. They've already had this discussion. They've taken care of it. They've talked to each other. They're good. And Megan says, well, nobody's going to yell or throw something or punch a wall or any of that and my mom says well no that's just not how that's not what we typically do <laughs> in this house right and that's not because my parents are perfect people that's because of the power of the holy spirit working through my parents that's just wasn't the pattern of life that was going on in my home and when megan saw that she said well what is about that that's not how it's typical in our home there's a different thing that's going on typically and that was a powerful encouragement to her that following the lord provided blessing right? Look at this. Look at how there's harmony. Even when there's not harmony, there's still something that the Lord is bringing out of that. And it was very encouraging. And so it's a good reminder that 
as you're seeing the Lord do that in your home, bring other people into that as much as you can. That's going to be very powerful to them. And if you mess up, tell them, hey, I, that wasn't right. That's not how I should act, and I need to apologize to you, or I need to apologize to this other person. That's also a witness to them. So the struggle here, right, is we say that, and yes, these are all the ideals, right? These are the things that should be happening. The struggle and the sorrow here is oftentimes the family is the last place where we learn to practice Christ-likeness. How many, you know, have you ever had that struggle, right? Growing up as a kid, we're, we're all very good. As soon as we get out the doors, we come back in and it's different, right? <laughs> that, that's just a true thing. And that can cause a lot of bitterness and a lot of struggle within families. When you see hypocrisy go on, when the parents see, well, how come you can behave for them, but you're not going to do that for me, right? Or when the kids see like, hey, you just got off the phone with them and now you're acting a little bit different, right? That can cause a lot of pain within a Christian family. And that's not the way the Lord intends it. The Lord intends the family to be a proving ground that teaches us to follow Christ. That's what God would want from our families. And we need to make sure that we don't miss out on that opportunity. Now, how are we going to do that? Is that we're just going to work harder and we're just going to yell at each other more? I can guarantee you that won't help. Right? No, it's, this is something that should drive us to our knees. It should drive us to beg the Lord for the power of the Holy Spirit. I can definitely, in the last couple of years as I've started to have kids, this has been the biggest realization for me in my Christian walk of my need for the power of the Holy Spirit. There are some things that you just cannot handle without the Holy Spirit. And that's why the Lord gives them to you, is it gives you a little bit of desperation where you say, Lord, this child will not go to sleep. I've read the book. I've done the things. It's not working, right? Lord, I can't help this child understand the gospel, right? They're four years old and I, they're very sinful. What am I going to do? And it, it, it points you to the Lord. And you've been around my kids, so you know. It, it, it points you to the Lord, right? And that's what it should do. That desperation is a good thing. Don't let that be discouraging for you. That's what the Lord is wanting to do. He's using that stuff that's going on in your family to pull you to himself and to get you where you need to be, where you're saying, Lord, I can't do this. That's where we need to be. And we'll talk about that as we continue reading through about how prayer is kind of the center of all of this. And I'm just going to mention as a side note, for some reason, um, we, in this little section of instructions, verse 21 doesn't get pointed out as much. And now that I'm a father for the first time in my life and teaching this, it's really been hitting me right between the eyes. Where it says, fathers, do not provoke your children, uh, lest they become discouraged. And I never really understood that. And I've understood it now as I've been reading through and studying and seeing my own behavior with my kids. It's very important that we don't, as we're walking with our children, tempt them to anger and frustration through our own hypocrisy or for not asking forgiveness when we're wrong or for um, just behaving in a selfish way or harshly with them. You know, kids get that. You know, it's very interesting to watch a four or five-year-old see that you're messing up and you don't even know, and the kid is telling you, right? Have you ever, parents, you don't have to raise your hand, have you ever disciplined a child for something that five minutes later you found out their sibling did? That's only a little bit humbling. <laughs> you now have to walk all that back and you, you know, have to tell them, oh, I, I was wrong and I was also hasty and I should have punished your brother for that and all that, right? And that, if praise the Lord, the Lord gives grace for those moments, but you don't want to provoke if you can avoid it, right? You don't want to do that through just thinking about yourself. And all these things are pointing us to each other. When I'm disciplining my children, I need to be making sure that I'm doing it in the Holy Spirit and out of love for them, not out of frustration or out of my own convenience, which is a huge challenge for me, just to be honest with you guys. So it's a good reminder for us, and that's just one verse that I haven't seen taught on as much, and I needed to hear it. So that's what we're going to do. All of these instructions, if followed through the Holy Spirit's power and grace, will create families, and we'll keep reading, they'll create workplaces, they'll create lives that will manifest the gospel in the world. It will reveal 
what God wants to do in the world through our families, through our workplaces, wherever we go. That's the goal here. So you're going to see as Paul goes through, he's going to speak to all the different areas of life and explain to us how what we're doing there is supposed to show people who Jesus is, what the gospel is, what the power of the Holy Spirit is. So that's what we're going to see going through all these things. This next section, starting in verse 22, is going to go through uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, these are some words and some instructions that are a little bit foreign and alien to us. And we'll be able to apply them pretty directly to our lives. There's a pretty good through line. But let's look at the context first, right? We don't want to jump right to, well, what am I supposed to do with this? So let's understand what it was intended in context, and then we'll talk about how it applies to us. Um, according to a commentator I read, more than half of the people seen on the streets of the great cities of the Roman world were slaves. And this was the status of the majority of professional people, such as teachers and doctors, as well as that of menial laborers or craftsmen. Um, so this is not, you know, when we think about this as like a special class of, of people, this was a large amount. In, in some periods of the Roman Empire, this was the majority of the Roman people you would interact with had slave status. Um, and that would be everybody from people who were assigned to like working in a mine, which was one of the worst assignments you could have. It was essentially an extended death sentence to people who had a small business but were a slave to someone else. They worked, they had a little, you know, they were a doctor or whatever, and, and they ran that whole thing. They had a ton of freedom, but they had slave status and weren't able to be a citizen. There were certain restrictions on them. On them. So to give us context, Roman slavery was not exactly what you would think of as modern day, you know, what we would call chattel slavery that we see in the modern world through, you know, the United States or the European empires. It wasn't exactly like that. It also was not exactly what we would think of today as an employer-employee relationship. <laughs> Wasn't like that. Um, it was a brutal institution in which very much was left up to the master's whims, including the literal life of the slave. A lot of it depended on who the person was that you were connected and associated to. Many slaves would have a pretty amazing life. They would own other slaves occasionally, or they would have a large amount of responsibility within a household. And some slaves, you know, it was a punishment for some sort of insurrection that had gone on. They were condemned to be a gladiator or to go into a mine, and that was essentially, again, a death sentence. So. Um, your life could be taken as a slave and there was no legal recourse for that. It was not considered important because in the Roman world you were not considered essentially a person. Uh, everything Paul is going to instruct here, just like his other instructions, right? We just saw in the family, he gave some instructions that were very countercultural, that are countercultural to us and were back then. He's going to give some instructions that are universal instructions, transcendent instructions because of the gospel and the kingdom of God, and therefore they're going to be countercultural for everybody. This would have disagreed with pretty much everybody in the Colossian church who read this. Didn't matter what social status they had, nobody would have been reading this and saying, oh, yep, that's easy. Everybody would have been surprised. And the same thing as we're going to apply it to our lives. It's going to help us to understand what the Lord wants from us. In another place, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 22, Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. 
For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. So, without really diving into a lot of this here, because this is something that we've consistently heard Tyler teach as we've gone through the New Testament, um, the primary concern in the New Testament is the way that we live the gospel out in our situation. Not that all situations be changed or that justice be spread legislatively or through government. That is not what the Lord saw fit to include by the power of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament that we have. Um, this, of course, does not set aside the fact that all through Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, we see that justice glorifies God and that injustice is a shame and it brings destruction and judgment to a society. Look at the, the prophets, for example. Every prophet is saying, what are you doing? You know, woe to the way you treat the poor. Woe to the way you treat these people. That was a, a shame and the Lord was not happy with it. But in a, a bunch of options that were out there in the world, right? When the gospel comes to the world and, and the, the scripture is being written and Christians are beginning to kind of invade through the whole, the whole world, they had a bunch of options for how they could have taken care of this problem, if you will, of how terrible society was. And we talked about just last week, you know, that, that quote that Tyler read right at the end is, is historically accurate, I would argue. Um, Whatever you think of is going on in our day, it was worse when the gospel came into the world. Society was worse. It was a terrible, terrible place to live. And the way the Holy Spirit chose to deal with this problem, instead of attacking the existing corrupt social order, was to go right around it and turn it upside down. That's how the gospel went through the world. Everything that changed in the Roman world that you can see historically happened because of changed hearts. Roman violence and brutality, sexual perversion, uh, treatment of women, treatment of children, slavery, all of these huge problems in society you see over the course of history just began to disappear as people started to realize, what are, what are we doing? Why are we doing that? Why is it that we behave this way toward infants? Why is it that we behave this way towards slaves and, and women and all this stuff? And that happened through the power of the gospel. As individual hearts started to be changed, people said, well, wait a second. If what God says is true, that there's no slave or free, there's no male or female, there's no Gentile or Jew, then I can't behave this way towards someone else. And all of a sudden you started to see society change. This was very different from the path that the Roman world would have offered to these people. You know, we've we got to realize that for the, for the Roman world, there was no solace for these conditions that people lived in. It was one of the saddest, as I was doing background understanding for the history of this, it was one of the saddest little stories I've ever come across as I've been studying the Roman world offered slaves this solace. There's thousands and thousands of prayer tablets that archaeologists discover in these different uh, temples where you would go to this temple and you would write onto your you know, little piece of pottery and kind of throw it into the bucket and it was considered to be offering a prayer to the god. And there's a, a Roman god of medicine whose name I can't pronounce that all of these slaves would put little pieces of pottery and over and over the same prayer would come from slaves and it would ask that the god would heal their uh, tattoos that they'd be given. They'd be given a facial disfiguring tattoo that said, I am a slave, return me to this place or this town. I am escaped. I, have, I am a thief. You know, take me back. Because these people would be given this tattoo to prevent their escape. And all these slaves would go to this temple and say, you know, please miraculously make this disappear so that I can escape. Right? So that was, in the Roman world, that was your path out. Was praying to an idol that hopefully, maybe magically, something would change. And nothing changed. It got worse as the empire spread. Slavery became worse and worse. But that wasn't what happened through the power of the gospel. Paul calls these people brothers, and he says they have an internal inheritance, which was 
something pretty interesting for them to hear because slaves couldn't inherit anything. You could be given all these things. You could go through life. You could be manumitted at the end of your, uh, your, your master's life and have your freedom, but you couldn't get his property because that was illegal. Even if they wanted to, they couldn't give you that. And Paul says, well, you have an inheritance. It's from Jesus Christ. Now, that's very powerful. Paul had a bunch of choices of how he could instruct them, and he gives them the hope of the gospel that's better than basically anything else they could have been told. And it turned the entire world upside down. So, let's apply this to us then. This is the hope that Paul is giving to people that are in absolutely terrible situations that we don't, even, you know, I'm not making jokes here, notice, because you don't make light of this stuff. It's horrible what these people went through, and Paul is giving them hope in Jesus Christ. Now, if God cares about our work, Right? We can see that from this. Even in that situation, God cares about our work and how we carry it out and the, the example that we give. And our diligence, even in mundane things, glorifies him. Then, hey, if, if these people who are in that situation could be instructed to look to the Lord rather than to their master, I shouldn't look to my boss. I should look to the Lord, right? Certainly, in a voluntary contract system where I've offered to give certain things and to receive wages, I think I can, I can look to the Lord when I'm treated unjustly or treated unfairly, which happens all the time, right? We've all worked out in the world. You, you get a tough break sometimes. And what's our instinct? Our instinct is, now listen, they can't treat me like that. This is America. Well, look here. In Rome, right, people were being treated really poorly. And Paul's instruction was, you're serving the Lord Christ. That would have been so hard for some of these people to hear because they were in difficult situations. And Paul wasn't callous to that, right? He says, hey, if you can be free, be free. Paul would send a freed slave back to his master. With, it's a hilarious letter where he basically is writing like, listen, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I am an old man and I'm in chains and it would be nice if you would send Onesimus back to me, right? Paul is, Paul is really working this and encouraging him in Jesus Christ, hey, do what's right, right? So it's not that he's callous to these things, but it's that he's remind, remembering of what is most important. Paul called himself Christ's bond slave frequently. So did some of the other apostles. That was a really crazy thing to say in that society. They should have been proud of their status. Paul had citizenship status. That was a coveted thing that he had, especially being who he was as a Jew. And so he had this status. And instead he's like, yeah, but I'm Jesus' bond slave. I chose that. That bond slave concept, you got to think back to Deuteronomy. I don't have time to read it, but Deuteronomy where there would be slaves who would serve and then they would be about to leave and they would say, I don't want to leave. Just make me a voluntary slave. And that was a constant condition that you couldn't get out of because you had chosen. So Paul said, that's what I am. I chose to be Jesus' slave. Here I am. I'm, I'm stuck here. This is what I want. And that's a good thing. So remember that that's how we are with Jesus Christ. We don't have the option to leave anymore. We've voluntarily given ourselves to Jesus' lordship. When Paul says you're serving the Lord Christ, there's almost a little, um, apparently in the text, there's almost a little, not a pun, but there's a little extra nuance where he's saying, you're not, the Lord is what you would call a master. And he says, you're serving the Lord Christ. Don't look at this person. Yeah, they're awful, and they may be doing bad things, or maybe they're great. That's awesome. But you're looking at Jesus. That's your master. That's the person you're supposed to be serving. What an encouragement for all of us, no matter what condition we find ourselves or where we're serving. God cares about our work. He cares about the way that we carry ourselves, and people are watching. As a believer, if you're saying, I love Jesus, and you're the guy who's always late and always leaving early, that's not a great testimony, right? the guy who's always watching the clock, right? And I've been caught doing that all the time, and it's not good. People notice these things. And at the same time, when you show up, and I've had this happen, when you show up and you're the guy who's working hard and you're just happy all the time, I've had people get mad at me. Like, why are you so happy? I'm like, I'm sorry, man. Like, I just, I'm, it's a pretty good day. I mean, I love Jesus. It can't be that bad, right? And, and, and people just, they get this look in their eyes because they're like, I'm working this same terrible job with you, and you should be angry like me. It's a cool opportunity to witness when you serve Jesus, through that, that job, right? And that's what the Lord would have 
for us to do. And then verse 1, uh, yes, it's verse 1 of chapter 4, but I think you can see it kind of fits a little bit with the thought before, so I want to keep it all contained there. It says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So this is ending the instructions to different types of people, and it kind of follows from the discussion of slaves. And again, Paul, I'm not even really going to address this very much other than to just say this, that we can pray about. Paul could have addressed this issue in many different ways, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he addressed the heart of the matter, confident that the gospel would bring life and peace to each individual situation. Paul believed in the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel to change people's hearts. He didn't need to attack problems at any other level other than saying, hey, if you walk according to how Jesus wants you to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's going to change pretty much everything. And it did. That's exactly what happened when people began to submit their lives to the authority of Jesus. God cares how we conduct business and how we treat others over whom we have authority. And this is not just you know, a New Testament thing. You read, I don't have time, but go spend your time in Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 15, and then also Deuteronomy 24, 12 through 15. And you see sets of instructions about how the Israelites were supposed to have slaves. And you've got to remember, this was not them being encouraged. Like, okay, here's when you, when you have slaves. It was a concession to them, just like God gave them laws of divorce. Hey, I know that you're sinful and you're going to do some of these things, so here's what you're going to do. And by the time you read all these rules about how they're supposed to keep slaves, you're like, that's a better job than I have. I don't get that, right? They had retirement plans as slaves. They had all these different things that God said, listen, if you're going to do it, here's how you're going to do it. You're going to be loving to these people. I'm going to demand that you do it. And that's the heart of the Lord. God demands of us as his servants that our conduct of ourselves in the marketplace of the world, no matter what our position is, carries the beauty of his kingdom to that place. So it doesn't matter. If we're on the bottom or on the top, the demand of us is, hey, it doesn't matter what your status is. People should be looking at you and seeing Jesus in the way that you're acting, the way that you're carrying out that business, whether you're the guy who's sweeping the floor or you're the guy who set the whole thing up and now you're just kind of coming into work every day and watching people work for you. Those are both fine before the Lord as long as you're serving in a way that's a testament to Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and the way that your life is changed and different. A lot of times, I don't think we should be asking ourselves, what's the ROI, you know, the return on investment? Well, if I do this and I do this, what's the bottom line? Yeah, but what, rather, how does this attitude or action that I'm going to take in my business or my work life, is this going to point people towards the beauty of Jesus Christ? That's the important question, right? And sometimes, right, those things are going to go together. You're going to be blessed because you act that way. And sometimes it's going to hurt on the bottom line. You're going to make a decision where people are going to look at you and say, that's a really bad business decision. And you're going to say, yeah, I know, but it's a pretty good Jesus decision. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that this is going to result in the Lord being pleased. And hey, the Lord's going to take care of the money part, right? And, that's, and that could hurt us or help us financially, but what's our goal, right? We're serving the Lord Christ. We're not serving anything else, including our own bank account, which is a good reminder. Um, I got to watch this. I'm, all these illustrations from my parents, they'll be happy. Hey, Mom and Dad. Um, <laughs> I got to watch this uh, really vividly kind of in my dad, you know, growing up. For 10 years, my dad ran a business, and he started out really small. Was, he was self-employed. He ran one truck. He ran around painting cars. Pretty soon, he had too much work to do, so he started hiring guys. And he would hire guys, and I, one time, I would go out with him in the summers or stuff. If I had spare time, I'd go out with him. And, and I started to ask him. He would say, yeah, you know, here's how I do this. And he would kind of explain the business as your dad. So he says, here's how we're doing this and that. And he said, yeah, when a guy starts out, I pay him, you know, hourly. And then when it's better money for him, I pay him commission. And I said, oh, okay. And um, again, I'm young, so I don't, I don't know everything. But I'm like, isn't that kind of, that's not how people do it, right? And he says, yeah, but that's how I want to do it. He says, they'll work harder for me if they know that I'm doing the right thing by them. And that was true most of the time. 
Some people took advantage of him. But he still did what was right, right? Because he, was, he knew he was serving the Lord. And the way that he acted in business, man, was it really different than the way normal people on used car lots acted, right? And people watched that. People said, what is the matter with Jeremy? He's dumb. Like that's the, they said, that's not the way you do that. Like I, the, because these people were constantly gouging my dad or watching for a time when my dad wasn't paying attention to get something over on him. And my dad knew that that was going on, and he just did what was right. And that was a huge witness to people through that, the way he carried those things out. So, again, no matter where we find ourselves, the goal is that we remember whose servant we really are, right? If we're a Jesus bond slave, and that matters in the way that we carry out these things in the world. All right. Now, that's a lot of instruction. And it's all very difficult. If we're honest with ourselves when we read that, we say, well, who's just like the, you know, it says of teaching the word, who's sufficient for these things? Who's going to be able to do this? This is hard. I have to go home with these same people. Don't you understand who lives in my house? And I'm supposed to do all these things with them? That's difficult, we say, right? Not my people, of course. They're, they're perfect. And my wife's back there. Um, but it's difficult, these things. Genuinely, they are. We know our own flesh. These are hard. What, how are we going to do this? Well, it's, I'm glad you asked. Verse 2 through 4 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So, Paul is asking that they continue in prayer so that the gospel can go forth. And he asks for a couple of things. He says that their prayer be continuous and watchful, and steadfast, the idea is, this is a, just my paraphrase, so it's not, you know, translation or anything, but my, you could almost say, do this continually, continue in the prayer courageously, knowing that you may come to some sort of failure if you don't keep in this kind of careful devotion. Like, I, I'm going to keep in doing this because if I fail to do that, there may be a, a, a problem that may come up or a consequence from not being in prayer. That's the way that he wants you to think about it. Not out of a legalistic thing, but out of a thing of, it, there's some interesting words that are continuous, watchful. And why is it that we're doing this? He says that the Lord may open a door to declare the mystery of Christ. There's this idea of making manifest the gospel, the Greek word that I'm not going to try and pronounce, to make something visible or known that had been hidden or unknown, um, whether by words or deeds or any other way. The, the, some translations here, the ESV says the mystery of Christ to declare it, something that was mysterious, wasn't seen before. And Paul says this all the time. He talks about, hey guys, before there wasn't the gospel and people were serving according to the law and that was the best that you could get and it was a perfect law, but it was hard. We couldn't do it. And now we have the mystery of Christ. We're declaring that, right? In order to do that, well, we're going to need to pray. That's the most important thing he says. He could, again, could have been plenty of things that Paul could have instructed them to do. And the thing that was right on top of his, his mind and his heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of the Spirit is prayer. Prayer is a central part of the manifestation of the gospel. Paul didn't throw prayer in as an afterthought when all else failed, right? It was the instruction he gave them as to how they could assist his ministry. Because you've got to remember, Paul is like a lot of the time that Paul's writing, he's stuck somewhere and people can't get to him. And they've got to feel bad about that. This is a person that was interacting with them in their early time of getting saved, you know how you have that attachment to somebody? You can probably think of somebody that either they were walking with you when you first got saved or they were really discipling you early on. And there's this really good, holy, spiritual attachment to that person. You have that love for them. And they can't get to him. They can't help him in any other way. And they've got to be kind of like freaking out. Like, what are we going to do? Paul says, you can pray for me. Now, sometimes when we hear that, we get kind of disappointed. We're like, oh, yeah, right. But like, what can I do? We say, right? 
that's not how Paul thought of it. That, Paul said, no, that's exactly, you can pray for me, man. That's what I need, is I need you to be praying so that I can keep manifesting the gospel here where I am in prison. Right? Paul is stuck, and he's not praying for, well, you can pray that I, you know, I'm, I'm almost finished with this tunnel, and if I can just get, it's not what he said. He said, hey, pray that I can keep on preaching the gospel, because that's the most important thing for me. That's, that's why I'm here, in prison even, and that's what I'm still trying to do. He started this book saying that he was praying for the Colossians, and now he's asking that they pray for him. There's all these challenging instructions he's given. How are we going to do these things, Paul says, to pray? Scripture is clear throughout the, the Word that prayer is our way that we can engage in spiritual warfare and in spiritual conflict. And we're commanded to do this. Imagine if you're like a soldier of some kind, you have a set of standing orders, right? This is a specific order. Go over there, do this. But your standing orders are, it doesn't matter, like in general, if you find yourself just sitting there, here's what you're supposed to be doing. Prayer is part of our standing orders. It's not a specific order of like, oh, well, if it gets really bad, then you're going to want to deploy this prayer here. No, this is just, hey, did you wake up in the morning? Today is a day for prayer because that's what we do every day, right? That's an instruction for us from the Word. 1 Samuel uh, 12, 20 through, 20, sorry, try again. 1 Samuel 12, 22 through 23 says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. What a, that's an instruction and a bit of a rebuke there. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, right? And I love how even within the structure of the book, it's, it's prayer for other people. It's just like the relationship with the family, right? Because that's what Paul is telling them is, hey, we're a family now, guys. Like, we're all part of each other. He talks about the unity that they have. He says, hey, I'm praying for you. You pray for me, right? Sometimes when I'm praying, it's all about me. It's like, hey, Lord, here is a very long list of problems that I have. <laughs> and even in the middle of that, doesn't the Lord redirect you? You're praying, you're praying, and the Lord says, hey, what about, like, what about this thing? Do you remember this? And, you, and you're like, that's a distraction, Lord, I'm busy. The Lord says, no, it's not a distraction. Stop what you're doing. I want you to pray for this person, right? You ever think about somebody randomly in the middle of the day? I, I'm getting better, not great, but I'm getting better about just stopping and saying, okay, I believe in a supernatural God. This is not a coincidence. Let's go ahead and pray for that person, right? Why would you, you know, I would brush that off like, oh, that's interesting. And the Lord's like, no, no, I'm saying pray for them, right? The Lord's, we're a family. We're relying on each other for that. And that's a good thing. It, it reminds us of each other. It gives us a good love for each other. And that's, that's the attitude that we should have together. In Ephesians, we have right after the armor of God passage in Ephesians, right? Ephesians 6, where it talks about the full armor of God that we're supposed to put on. I never really noticed how these things are connected. But in Ephesians 6, verse 18, after the full armor of God, it says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, be watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. You could almost literally, you could say it's like praying in all times with all prayers. There's a lot of all going on. It's a redundant kind of way of putting it. So you can see even through the context there, after we've all got, okay, I've got this armor of God on, I've got this and this and that, and I've got the, the word and the, the gospel and the peace and all that. Now what? Well, you're supposed to pray. Well, I'm all, here all, all my armor. Who am I supposed to fight? Right, you're, you're supposed to pray now. <laughs> that is how we engage and we do that through all of those different components of the armor of God that God has given us. We engage in spiritual warfare this way. That is the battle plan. There is not an alternative option. God has not given to us, the church, some sort of alternative thing. Well, prayer is boring or hard, so I'm going to do this other thing instead because it seems more effective to me. God, God has not promised that that will be effective. 
He hasn't given us that, that promise from the word that this is how I do things, but he has for prayer. He said he hears those things. He said he acts on behalf of those things. He hasn't promised that about lots of other things that I'm not going to name because I don't want to get myself in trouble. But prayer, he said that. He said, this is how I'm going to do things. And it's good for us to listen to him when he says that. Jesus has asked that question, right? When he returns, is he going to find faith on the earth, faithfulness in prayer? And lack of prayer, uh, the Lord has told me in my life, so I'll just share this for me. In my life, when I do not pray, I've been convicted lately that the reason is because I'm lacking faith that God is going to do the things he said in his word, that God has power to carry out what I'm asking for, or that God wants to. I'm lacking faith in God's character, right? That's the reason that we don't pray. When I'm filled with the faith for those things, when I say, look, I just read this in the word, God wants to do this, and I know he wants to do it because of who he is, and and he can do it, that's when I'm involved in prayer. But when I'm thinking really deep down in a place that I wouldn't tell another believer, you know what, I'm not really sure that God's going to change that situation. That's when I don't pray, right? And that's not a good thing. I should be asking myself, okay, Lord, why am I thinking that of, of you? Has that been the, the way that the Lord's treated me in the past? Have I prayed for things and God said, yeah, you know what? I could do it, but I just can't be bothered right now. That's not how the Lord's treated me, right? In any area of my life. I've, and, and you know, the, the opposite is true, right? When we pray, God could say no, but when we don't pray, we're not giving him the chance to respond, right? And how many times, I don't know if this is true of you, but how many times have you had a situation where you have tried everything, I mean everything, smart things, dumb things, things that you shouldn't have tried, right? You've just, you've attacked it from every fleshly angle. You've worried about it. You've yelled about it to somebody else. And then finally you're like, all right, I, I, I have exhausted all of my ammunition. Let's pray about it. Backwards, but hey, the Lord gives us grace. Because the first time you pray, and I'm thinking, all right, now I'm going to buckle up. It's going to be months of prayer for this situation. And I pray about it one time and the Lord says, oh, cool, I'll do that. And I'm sitting there like, well, man, I should have done that a couple weeks ago. I had a lot of time that I invested in all these other ways, and the Lord was just waiting for me to come to him, right? Not out of vindictiveness, but I think because of relationship, right? He's saying, hey, come on, let's talk about it, and then I'd love to take care of that thing for you. And God's done that consistently in my life. Sometimes I think we imagine that God wants to make us repeat things over and over just for the sake of it. It's very often not been true in my life. As soon as I come and actually bother to pray, a lot of times God answers me. It makes me wonder why I don't pray more. If we want the gospel to be displayed and realized on earth, we are to pray. And this is especially true as we see more and more resistance to the gospel, right? The natural response that we have when we see that, when days get dark and things get difficult, is to be discouraged and to be scared and to be angry. That's the response that I have as soon as I get off Twitter. Um, But here's the problem with that response, right? That's neglecting that sometimes I believe that the Lord allows those things to push us to where we really should have been involved and fighting the whole time, right? Yeah, things are difficult. I'm not, you know, Tyler just finished teaching a whole thing on, hey, it is. We do have to look sometimes and say, wow, it's dark out there. But the response that we see is, hey, that's so dark that I don't think I'm going to be able to handle that in my own flesh. I had better pray about that. That's the tool that the Lord is giving us to attack those things that we see that are worrying us or making us angry is through prayer. Outrage and boycotts and social media and all those other tools, they don't achieve the righteousness of God. They usually make things worse and they make me worse, right? The more I engage in those things, have you ever gotten in one of those moments where you get off, again, this is, I'm just not even making fun. I'm just describing how it works for me. You get off the internet and you realize that I've just spent an hour just filled with anger, not even like rational anger. Like I'm angry at everyone for dumb things, right? And you realize this is making me more flesh. I'm getting worse. 
as I do this. I'm not even, not only am I not affecting that situation, I'm just getting more sinful. That's all that's happening here. The only change that's happening is in me, and it's not positive. Guess what prayer does? Prayer does this. Daniel 10, 11 through 13, this is uh, Daniel speaking of an encounter that he had with an angel. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. Why is he not standing upright? Because he saw an angel. That's what happens. For I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. So in context, what happens is Daniel is seeing all this stuff that's going on, and he starts to pray. And it says that he prayed uh, for quite a while, right? Um, I think it says 21 days, basically, this guy was withstood. But it says from the first time you prayed, like you prayed, and God said, hey, Daniel's praying, so I'm going to go ahead and send you. I want you to go take care of that. And this angel's dispatched, and then he gets engaged. He gets caught in this spiritual warfare of some kind. Don't ask me how this works. I do not know. I only know that it's here in the Word. I wouldn't tell you this was happening, right? I wouldn't think this up, but here it is in the Word. So apparently this is what goes on. There's this battle that's happening between these spiritual forces. And meanwhile, Daniel's praying, probably, if he was like me, thinking, man, is the Lord even listening to this, dude? Like, I'm, I'm sitting here, and I'm praying, and things are not getting better. And, and all this time, the angel's like, I need another guy, because, like, this is really difficult. Finally, he gets to Daniel, and he says, hey, I was coming like from the first time you prayed, because you humbled yourself and you asked the Lord. So I came. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? That's the goal. The Bible says angels are ministering spirits. And we see throughout the word when God wants to get something done, very often it's in response to a believer praying and he sends something like that to happen. That's what prayer does. I have never created a situation like that through any of the dumb actions that I try and take out in the world, right? I don't think I've ever dispatched an angel by yelling in my car about this, this situation, this person. I don't think it's happened. But I know for a fact that I have watched in my life supernaturally things just get unpicked by the Lord through prayer. That I didn't even know. I wasn't praying. I think I've told you guys. It wasn't like I was praying for a solution. I didn't know what the solution the Lord would do was. I didn't see one. And so I just prayed and then the Lord put something together. Where I was like, I couldn't have even like, you know how sometimes you try and shot call for the Lord. Like, Lord, if you do this and that, this will happen. The Lord says, no, oh, that's cool. Watch what I'm going to do. That's what prayer does. All right, we're running out of time, but we're okay. Verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So now this is just in general. Hey, when you're walking around, you're out in the world, how are you supposed to act? You're, you're bathed in prayer. You're, you're acting in this way towards all your other, you know, your family members, your workplace. Here's just, I don't know, when you're out there, <laughs> when you're out at the grocery store, right? This is... The way, in the world that the Colossians lived in, the world saw them as strange people. I've been doing a lot of reading lately just because I happen to be reading about it, in, about, just about that world of the, the new, early New Testament and how people thought about Christians. And they, bizarre was the way they thought it. They were, they were weird. They weren't, they weren't cool. They weren't okay. We're pretty sure that we need to do something about them. But they certainly weren't very well respected. Um, some people were violent towards them. They were seen as dangerous or, or a problem for society, you know, kind of just like today, right? <laughs> Most times in the history of the world, that's how the church has been seen. There's been very brief, blessed times, honestly, where it's been different, but it hasn't been the majority of time. Usually the church is seen as a very weird anomaly in the middle of society that we all aren't sure what we're going to do about it, but we're probably going to do something. We need to be watchful and filled with the Holy Spirit when we interact with the world. 
And, and that's what this is saying. It's saying, hey, your, your speech is gracious. You're walking in wisdom. You're making best use. It's almost this idea of like being careful. You're going to see that through the whole thing. It's like you're careful about what you're doing and saying. Um, we can't afford to operate in like Sunday mode and everyday mode, right? We can't afford to just kind of switch off as we walk out of the door there and, and well, this is fine. This is my normal life, right, which is what I do a lot of times. We can't afford to do that. Why? Well, because we're operating our everyday lives in enemy territory. That's super dangerous. If you just switch off and say, yeah, we're, it's, this is cool. I'm at the grocery store. That's not in the spiritual. I bet there's angels that are like, dude, you were fine in church. Like, you could relax there. Now you can't relax, man. Like, what are you doing? There's this illustration that just made sense to me. There's this, um, I think it's called Cooper's Colors. It's a, it's a system that was created for uh, police officers or fighter pilots or whatever to think about different situations in a very dangerous job that they do. And there's, so there's different colors for different situations. White is the one where you get in trouble. If you're in condition white, you're just not thinking, of, you're not worried about threats, you're just chilling the way that I usually am, right? Condition yellow is the next one up where you're just constantly aware that there could be a threat. You don't see one. You're not taking any action, but you're just aware and, and looking at things. And then you get to like black where you're hyperventilating and your body's shutting down and you don't want to be there, right? You're in constant anxiety. As Christians, we don't need to be in this constant anxiety state, right? We're always worried about what's going to happen. But we also shouldn't be in just kind of the switched off mode all the time. You want to stay there in that place of alertness where you're saying, Lord, what am I supposed to be doing here? What's going on over here? Am I supposed to be praying about this? Is this person needing to hear from the Lord? Like, what, what are we doing here? Being aware that the Lord is going to use you in all these situations of your life. That's the kind of way that we should be walking. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There's this idea that our... Just like Jesus says, we're the salt of the earth, right? And there's a lot of different ways you can apply the idea of the salt of the earth. But for, for right now, what I think is interesting about what Paul is saying, our speech is to be gracious and seasoned with salt so you know how to answer each person. Each interaction that we have with the world is to leave them with a different Christ-like taste in their mouth so that they get thirsty, right? Not so that they get angry and spit it out and say, man, that's super, I don't like that at all, right? But something where they say, man, I would love to have more of that. Whatever that was, that was awesome. What was that? It was weird. What, what is going on with them? That's the attitude that people should have when they interact with us. That's not what they receive out in the world, right? So we, we do need to be different, not out of a sense of, well, I'm better than you, or I'm, you know, but out of a sense of, hey, when they interact with us, they should see Jesus in that interaction. That's the way that we should be leaving people feeling when we leave, right? Closing in verse 7 through 18, Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who's one of you. And they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he's worked hard for you and for those who in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. 
I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So there's a lot of stuff in there that we're not going to be able to really dig into. There's some really cool details. But basically what Paul does is he names all these different brothers who are praying for them, who are engaged somehow in the ministry, who are going here or coming there, bringing the letter, traveling over here. And we, you kind of, you almost have to get a map sometimes and plot out, well, Paul's sending this guy over here and this trip's happening here. There was a lot that was going on. And I love, do you see how all these guys just have a concern? They have a zeal, just like Paul. They're praying for these people. He says they're really, that was his work, is this one guy was just praying for them all. Um, and it's encouraging. That's the heart that we should see for each other. This is a pretty motley crew that Paul served with. You've got an escaped slave, right? We're pretty sure that Onesimus is the same escaped slave. So this is a guy that Paul later was going to send back to his master asking that they be brothers in Christ, which is a pretty radical thing. Uh, you've got a doctor in, in Luke who's kind of, we think of as a more high status person. Not sure that would have been the same way, but definitely a, a professional person, a person who would be respected and needed. Um, we have one guy that we don't even, we've got his name. There he is. That's his name. Don't know anything else. Haven't seen him anywhere else in scripture. Who knows? Um, we've got a guy who's a relative of the apostle Mark, right? Somebody who would have been respected because of who he was connected to. People from all these different ethnic backgrounds. But the most important thing to them about themselves was what they shared in Jesus Christ. Even just in the group of people, they were displaying to the world that God's kingdom was totally different, right? These are not people who would have been friends in the Roman world, usually. They would have been people who would have been divided, and society was happy with that. That's the way it's supposed to be. They're over there. We're over here. That's how, it, that's how everything stays good. Don't mess with that. That's not how the church was. Everybody was in there. And that was good. That was right, because it was God's kingdom that was being displayed to people. Look at how these people can love each other. That's not normal, right? You ever been to a church like that where you're, you're looking, maybe you're standing in the back and you're looking at people's heads in the back and you're like, okay, police officer. He used to be a gangster, I'm pretty sure. He doesn't talk about it, but we know, right? Like, and you go down the list of people and you're like, man, you, you couldn't put these people into a building for any other reason except for Jesus. And that's pretty cool, right? That's the, that's the supernatural power of the gospel. You can't do that in any other way. You can't bring that kind of unity by just making people or asking people. Jesus can do that. And that's what we're supposed to see here. So as we're closing... This has kind of been the message of the full book of Colossians is that we're supposed to have that life in Christ. We're putting off our own self, the care of ourself, right? And we're committing ourselves voluntarily to Jesus. We're going to be a slave to Jesus. What are Jesus' goals? What does Jesus want? That's what I want now, right? We're allowing him to take that place in our life. He's ruling in all the different areas of our life, no matter what we're doing. And as we do that, we're going to show through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Not through our, our power. But we're going to show supernatural love for people, supernatural difference in the way that we interact with people. And we do the normal things of our life, right? And that's going to make us salt and light in a really, really dark world. These people, I can, you know, you can even read accounts about them from people who did not believe in their God or anything about them, people would write about them and say, I don't know what it is with these Christians, but they're different. I don't get it. We don't do it like this. They love their children. We don't love our children. Right? They love, they, their, their marriages are working different. They, they've got slaves and masters going to the same church. What is the deal with these people? That was the, the, the message that they gave to the world at that time. And it's the same thing for us. As people see us around, they should see a difference in who we are because of Jesus, right?